Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Special welcome to West Campus and to South Campus and Converge and our internet campus. We are so glad that you are able to join us this morning. It's an honor for me to be able to be able to be here and to open up God's word with you. You know, when our oldest daughter, Katie, was about four years old, uh, Patty and I took our two girls at that time camping. Now, I remember the time pretty well, even though it was uh, now over 40 years ago. Uh, Katie and I were walking by the lake, and I was a step or two in front of her, obviously keeping my eye on my little four-year-old daughter that was walking by, walking right beside the lake. And I turned around at one point because I noticed that she had stopped to examine something on the side, the edge of the lake. And I can remember vividly looking at her and saying, that little girl is going to fall into that lake. And sure enough, as soon as I said those words in my brain, there she went, she toppled right over head first into the lake. Now, I was only a couple steps away from her, and so I rushed over, looked down, there was Katie, kind of looking up at me with her arm kind of reached up. She was totally submerged in the lake, but I'm sure in her mind, she probably thought she was gonna drown. Of course, you know, I, I just reached down, grabbed her arm, pulled her out of the lake, you know, and I, you know, I've got you. You're okay. You know, I'm here. You're fine. That was pretty scary, wasn't it? You know, all of those things that dads are going to say to their daughter after they just fought, fell into the lake. It was one little girl with one big troubled heart. And she probably thought at that moment, boy, I'm in trouble. I'm going to drown here in this lake. I've thought about that episode many times over the years because sometimes we all feel like we're probably drowning in a lake of troubles. Troubles can feel overwhelming at times, hard to get our heads above the water, left gasping for air and for poor Katie falling into that lake, that momentary crisis that that was there, even though it only lasted a couple seconds, seemed like probably a long time, a lot of fear, anxiety, and panic. You know, our Lord says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. A person can have troubled heart over a variety of things, not just falling into a lake our heart might be troubled over the loss of a loved one. Our heart might be troubled over the way things might be going in your marriage. This pandemic, along with all of the mandates and vaccines and the potential loss of jobs and everything else associated with it, can cause anybody to have a troubled heart. You may have a heart that's troubled over the way that the world has influenced either education or politics or relationships. You can have a troubled heart over your health issues or your boss or your finances or trouble at work or the way that the organization is going. Have a troubled heart over worry or anxiety over your future or your dating or friends. You might be experiencing a troubled heart before a big exam or a test or something that's coming up at work. You might be experiencing a troubled heart right now, this morning. You know, I know over my 
lifetime, I've had many times of a troubled heart, over loss of a loved one, contemplating my future, watching your children as they grow up and make choices in life, troubled heart over broken relationships with friends. I've experienced troubled hearts over just before a critical examination of one sort or of another. I think that a troubled heart is something that we can all probably relate to one way or the other. We've all experienced a troubled heart. And that's when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he reaches down and he basically says, I've got you. I've got you. How do you deal with a troubled heart? If you have your Bibles or your app or whatever, turn to John chapter 14, where we're talking through the upper room discourse. As we continue in our series poured out, Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room discourse, found in John chapter 13 through John chapter 16. The high priestly prayer is in John chapter 17. It's the Passover feast. It's the night before he was betrayed and going to the cross. Later, they would make their way to Gethsemane where he would be betrayed and go to the cross. And these are Jesus' final words to his disciples. And he's not saying anything new here that he hasn't said before throughout his, his time on earth. What he's doing is he's really summarizing his ministry in preparation for his, de, his departure. And in jo John chapter 13, which Cody just had preached through, there was two events that happened in John chapter 13. There was the foot washing event, and then there was the giving of the sup to Judas. At the end of chapter 13, Judas leaves. The disciples are left and they're saying, what's going on? Is Judas going to be the one that betrays Jesus? And in John chapter 14, Jesus is left with a group of men, 11 men that have a troubled heart. They just saw Judas leave. They, Jesus had revealed that he's going away. And he also predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And Jesus is talking to a group of men whose hearts were far from tranquil. And in fact, the word they're troubled is also the word that John uses back in John chapter five to des describe the troublings of the waters at Bethesda. They were disturbed, they were stirred up, they were restless. And Jesus says in verse one of John chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. In verse 27 of John chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. What do you think he's talking about between one and verse 27? He's talking about, how am I gonna deal with a troubled heart? I've got a room here of men who have a troubled heart. Well, Cody last week pointed out in verses one through 11 of chapter 14 that Jesus says, you know, I have a plan. I have a provision. I have a promise. And now Jesus expands on those promises as he reaches down and he says, those of you that have troubled hearts, I've got you. And he makes three promises for those of us who are dealing with a troubled heart one way or the other. And the first promise that he says is in verses 12 through 14, where he says, I promise you answered prayer. Answered prayer. Look at what it says in verses 12 through 14 of John chapter 14. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. 
And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 12, Jesus promises greater things, and he's talking about greater things in quantity, not so much quality. Because here he's talking to 11 disciples, but we know that Peter goes to the Pentecost and he's talking to 3,000 come to know the Lord. We at Christ's chapel are ministering to more, even more than that. Greater things will happen because I go to my Father. In other words, because Jesus goes to the Father, greater things will happen because that power flows from the ascended Lord. And in the context, the power flows from the ascended Lord as a result of prayer. The Lord's work is the work of salvation. And if we go and we ask of the Father, we're really praying that lives will be changed. Lives will be changed. Two things we know about this passage. First, prayer is really asking God for something. If you ask anything in my name, ask in the thing. Prayer is asking God for something. Prayer is asking God for something in dependence upon him that he's gonna be able to pull it off. But secondly, the goal of answered prayer is that the Father would be glorified, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But verses 13 and 14 almost sound like a blank check. I mean, it sounds like sending your off, child off to college and giving her a checkbook and saying, here, fill in whatever amount you want. But in ancient times, a man's name really reflected his reputation. Ask anything in my name. And praying in Jesus' name is not just a formula or some sort of secret code that guarantees us anything that we want. No, play, praying in the name of Jesus means that you're praying on Jesus' merits of who he is, having the heart of God. It's praying as his representative, to stand in his place and to pray as he would be praying in this particular situation. It's praying to further his cause in the world, to bring glory to the Father and not just glory to yourself. See, God's not gonna answer your prayers if the request is wrong or if the timing is wrong or if the motive is wrong, but he says to his disciples, I will hear your prayers, I answer your prayers. This is a great encouragement because whatever troubles we're facing in life, we have the privilege of being able to take our request to the Lord and know that he hears and that he cares and that he answers our prayers. He may be physically gone from the disciples there, but as he was going to be physically gone, he was reminding the disciples, I will still be with you. I will answer your prayers. What are your requests this morning? What's troubling your heart? You see, Jesus promises to answer your prayers. He hears your prayers, so take your requests to the Lord in prayer. Whatever burdens you have on your heart, you have the privilege of being able to take those requests. That should be our first stop our first stop. But not only does he promise to answer our prayers, but he also, in verses 15 through 26 of this chapter, he promises the helper. Look at what it says. I'm gonna read verses 15 through 21. 
He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you, be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The word here that's translated in our text, helper, is the Greek word paraclete. Now, unfortunately, in our English language, we don't really have an adequate word to really be able to translate that word paraclete. The word paraclete really means someone who is called alongside to help, to comfort, to encourage, to exhort. And really it means someone who is, comes alongside to help shoulder a heavy burden, meaning like a heavy burden that you have in this life. Other translations translate that word paraclete by counselor or comforter. And those are true, but the Holy Spirit does far more than that. And in your notes, you have a little box there that talks about just a few of the works that the Holy Spirit does. Now, you're going to have to hang in here with me for just a minute, but this is very crucial. This is crucial to our walk with God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is part of the Trinity. One theologian wrote, and I want to read this. The theologian wrote, he said, while there is one God, there are three eternally distinct and equal persons in the Godhead existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is distinct from each other, yet the three are united as one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's one God. But notice Jesus also says that I will send you another helper, meaning that he himself had served in the role of a paraclete in his earthly ministry. In other words, he had been there as their guide, as their counselor, as their comforter. He had been there to help them walk through life. But now, since he was leaving, he was sending another helper, another paraclete, not of a different kind, but of the same kind, of the same quality as Jesus himself. And in this context, what an encouragement that would be to somebody who was saying, He's going to leave us. He's saying, no, I'll send you another. And notice verse 16. It's a gift of God. It's a gift. I will give you another. And 17, it's a spirit of truth. You see, the spirit of truth isn't going to lead us against anything that's in God's word. No, he's never going to lead us contrary to the teaching of God's word. It's the spirit of truth. We do not judge the Bible by our experiences. We judge our experiences by what it says in the Bible. But here's where the passage becomes very personal and very applicable. 
So you need to hang in there just a little bit longer. When Jesus says in verse 17, the end of verse 17, he says, he dwells with you and will be in you. What he's talking about there is the doctrine of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You say, whoa. If you remember in the Old Testament, the Old Testament had the temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would come temporarily upon individuals to help them in their task. For example, David. But Jesus knew what was going to be happening, and so Jesus tells his disciples about the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that would happen at Pentecost. At the moment of salvation, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit permanently enters into and dwells within the believer in Christ. All right, that was a mouthful. Now let's put that into perspective. How do we grasp this? Well, we all know, going back, and we look back in the context, we all know that we have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy, we are not. And because of our sin, we have earned death. For the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in Romans 6.23. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God took his son, Jesus, sent Jesus to take his, our place upon the cross. He died for my sins. It was a substitutionary atonement. He took that which was causing my death upon himself. He died in my place. And then he rose again from the dead as proof that that substitutionary atonement that he made on my behalf was an acceptable sacrifice to a holy God. And then all that we need to do is believe, to trust. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To transfer our trust from whatever we are trusting in, being a good person, doing good works, living a good life, trying to do right, whatever that is. Transfer our trust from that to what Jesus Christ has already accomplished on the cross. To believe in him and him alone as the only way to be able to get right with a holy God. The moment that you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that very moment you place your faith in Christ's, faith and trust in Christ as your savior, you receive the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's personal, it's intimate, and it's permanent. Permanent. And because of that, Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. There are no orphans in the family of God. Why? Because of the permanent indwelling of uh, believers of those who believe in Jesus Christ. There are no orphans. I will be with you. The world will not see me, but you will see me at the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, that will be the culminating factor. That will be the convincing, convincing piece of the puzzle that will confirm that what I am saying to you is true. That I am with the Father 
that you are in me and that I am in you. Mutual relationship. Jesus promises to manifest himself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to those who believe. Well, in verses 22 through 20, 24, Judas, not Iscariot, probably Thaddeus, Judas, not Iscariot, says, hey, why don't you just manifest yourself to the whole world? And Jesus says, well, I will to those who place their faith and trust in me, who believe in me, they will enjoy, enjoy that abiding fellowship with the Godhead. But then Jesus comes back in verse 25 and he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I'm physically with you, but that's about ready to change. And I want you to know that this new relationship that we have together is even more intimate by the promise of the Holy Spirit. You know, when our kids were young, we always told them when we got into a situation like going into a crowded environment, mall or amusement park or something like that, just before we'd always say, you know, if you get separated from us and you, and you realize that you're separated from us, just stop. Stop. Right where you are, just stop. We're not going to be able to find you if you keep moving around. Just stop right where you are. And if you stop right where you are, we will find you. We are not going to leave you. We are going to be searching high and low for you, but we can't find you if you keep moving. So stop right where you are and know, know we will find you. We are not leaving without you. We will find you. I can remember at one time, Katie, once again, got, got in front of us a ways and we were separated by some people. And uh, I, I still have my eyes on her, but she was, she was about 10 or 20 yards. And there was a lot of people in front of us. And I still had my eye on her. And you could see that, you know, she was just walking along and then she looked up and she didn't see anybody that she recognized just right around her. And she just <laughs> stopped. I came up to her and I said, yeah, I was just, you know, 10 yards behind her. Good girl, yeah, stop, just stop, we can find you. You know, sometimes we just need to know, know that you're not alone. You're not an orphan. Whatever troubles you're going through, you're not an orphan. I'm there with you. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. So know that you're not alone. We have the promise of answered prayer. We have the promise of the helper, but we also have the promise of peace. The promise of peace, look at what it says in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Disciples' heart was obviously troubled over the prospect that he was going to be leaving. But the word peace here carries with it a lot the same type in the Hebrew word that we use for shalom. But shalom really gives the impression of being in the right relationship 
with God. And the message of salvation in Christ is essentially a, a message of peace between mankind and God. Peace in that spiritual well-being of being rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. And he says, my peace I give to you. And because Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, we can now experience the peace of God, true peace by God, and be comforted by his sovereignty, but also by his security. You know, the world doesn't know, and it's unable to provide the type of special and personal peace that Jesus is able to give to us. The world offers a peace that's based upon circumstances, based around our surroundings. Jesus says, no, it's my peace that I give to you is, is a part, it's independent of those external circumstances. The peace that I give to you is deep within. Jesus says that the reason I've told you this beforehand is so that your faith might be encouraged. Peace with him. I hear your prayers. You're not alone. I'll give you peace. You know, in a human perspective, you know, in the hospital oftentimes when someone's about ready to go into surgery, the surgical nurse will come in and say, would you like your spouse or your loved one to be able to come in right before you take you down to, before we take you down to sur surgery? Absolutely. Why? Whoa, there's great comfort in knowing that he or she is nearby, somebody who loves you, that cares for you. They're there, they're, they're nearby. And you're able to experience that peace that comes from knowing and being able to rest in that. And Jesus promises a peace that transcends the troubles of this world. It's not looking at the temporal stuff. It's looking at the eternal stuff. He's saying, I've got you. You're all right. You're all right. I've got you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Have the promise of answered prayer. You have the promise of the helper. You have the promise of peace. You have a troubled heart this morning? What are you wrestling with? Relationships, health, finances, marriage, situation revolving around the pandemic. We have the assurance. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have the assurance of the Father being with you through those situations. You may feel like you are drowning in a lake of troubles and Jesus reaches down, grabs your hand and says, I hear your cries, I've got you. You're all right, you're all right. Take your requests to the Lord. No, you're not alone. Rest in God's sovereignty and his provision. You see, a troubled heart is calmed by the provision and the promise 
of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you once again give us the reality of your word. Thank you that Jesus Christ died for our sins and arose from the dead, that we might be able to experience true peace in you. Father, I pray for those that are here, specifically that they would cast all of their troubles that they might have at your feet, at your throne, and know that they're not alone, that they might be able to experience the peace that you provide by being rightly related to you. And Father, I pray for those that may not know you, that they would come to a place where they would place their faith and trust in you and truly be able to experience that peace that you were able to offer. Father, we are a needy people, but we also recognize and acknowledge our dependence upon you. Help us to keep our eyes focused upon you no matter what comes our way in this life. For we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.